Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. You know, uh, it's interesting, I think, as I was reading all of the news this morning, watching uh, TV reporting from the cable networks, um, it, I suddenly thought there was a time over a year ago when uh, we were considering whether Political Rewind should actually be on the air five days a week in, instead of fewer days, which it had been for most of its history. Um, and my concern was, are we really going to have enough to talk about five days a week? Well, <laughs> uh, we've been on the air five days a week since the beginning of January 2021. And let's say we haven't run out of things, <coughs> excuse me, on any given show to discuss. And that's certainly the case again today. So let's get right to it. Tamar Hallerman is with us as she is on the Tuesday edition of Political Rewind. She, of course, senior reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tamar, good morning. How are you? Good morning. It certainly is one of those weeks where I feel like I am drowning in news developments between COVID and Biden and, of course, what's happening in Ukraine. So we're so lucky to have a show like this to dissect and make sense of all of it. Yeah, and we're so lucky that you are a part of that show. So we're really grateful (laughs) to have you here. Charlie Hazlett is back with us. Charlie Hazel's got a long and distinguished career as a journalist in Georgia. Now he oversees a really terrific blog called Trouble in God's Country. Uh, Charlie, I think of it as a site where you do so much numbers crunching, come up with such interesting data uh, that tells us a lot about what Georgia's rural communities look like around the state. And I'm really happy you're with us today, too, Charlie. Thanks for being here. Good to be back, and I appreciate the opportunity. I will uh, add to that that it's not just a focus on rural Georgia. It's an effort to explain the the costs and the consequences of uh, of the divide that is happening in real time before us right now. So, but I'm glad uh, to be here. You. Appreciate it. Thank you for uh, uh, for uh, adding all of that to it. Um, Edward Lindsay is with us, former state representative who represented the city of Atlanta, and uh, is now over. He now oversees the Georgia governmental affairs practice at Denton's, which is the world's largest law firm. Edward, how are you this morning? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Look forward to the show. Uh, and we're joined by Chuck Cook. Chuck Cook is one of the country's uh, uh, most highly respected immigration attorneys. Um, Chuck, you know that when we first invited you to do the show today, um, I had said to you that there's a lot of interesting news about immigration, and uh, you're always the right guy to talk to about that. And maybe we'll get to some of that, but the news gods have intervened <laughs> and uh, suggested there are other things to discuss. Uh, and what I'm glad about is you can talk about just about anything we cover. Welcome to the show today. It's always great to be on air with you, Bill. Thanks for the invite. Sure. Um, in fact, tomorrow, let's start with looking at uh, some of the response 
that we're seeing in Georgia to the Russian invasion, which continues, uh, obviously. And in fact, we're learning this morning, if anything is getting more intense uh, as Russia steps up aerial bombardments, there's an armored column moving toward the capital city of Kiev. Um, so things are very difficult there. Uh, but we now have several developments uh, that we can talk about here. Number one, tomorrow, the, the governor's office issued a statement saying that right after the invasion, Governor Kemp ordered the, that they look at any investments that the state might have in uh, uh, Russian entities of various sorts. So far, they've only found one. There is a, um, a, 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 a group that uh, consists of a number of energy businesses and others in Russia that the state retirement system is invested in, and the governor has now ordered that that investment be stopped immediately. So uh, that's one step that the state has taken, tomorrow. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the governor and Speaker Ralston mentioned they were going to look for other um, investments like that. And we're also seeing different corporations around the states mentioning that they're going to strip away any partnerships they might have had or, or refrain from shipping things in the case of um, of uh, UPS and, and FedEx. Del Delta mentioned it's not going to cooperate with the Russian National Airlines. So many businesses are stepping in to see what sort of cooperation they might have. Um, actually, let's listen. David Ralston uh, supported uh, the uh, notion of the state looking for investments in Russia and uh, made a statement about it just uh, the other day. Let's listen to what he had to say. We've asked if the state of Georgia holds any investments in Russian equities or other assets. And if so, we will set about work to divest those assets with all due haste. I don't know about y'all, but I don't want one penny of a Georgian's money going to subsidize Vladimir Putin. Um, and, and while we're at it, let's listen to a comment that uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan made about the invasion uh, uh, just the other day as well. Here he is. That Vladimir Putin is a selfish, brutal dictator, and anybody who would tell you otherwise is lying. I call on this country, I call on this state, I call on this chamber to stand in support of the Ukrainian people as they fight for freedom. Um, Edward, one of the reasons I played both of those sound bites is um, we do know, now Jeff Duncan has never been in the Trump camp, um, but there are many Georgia Republicans who have been, who continue to support the notion of the big lie um, who have pushed for election reform measures that many people consider to have been unnecessary. Um, but on this, the issue of uh, Putin and the invasion of Russia, there are very few Georgia Republicans at this point who have chosen to go along with uh, Donald Trump, who has continued to celebrate uh, the genius of Vladimir uh, Putin. Edward? Well, I think there are very few uh, Georgians and Americans, period, uh, that are celebrating uh, the accomplishments of uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, nor should they. And, uh, and I particularly liked the comments yesterday uh, from Senator Russ Goodman uh, from Homerville, who was particularly pointed in his denunciation of anyone who would be supporting him at this time. 
I would also like to point out, if I may, in addition to the uh, commercial questions and the business questions regarding seven cars in Russia and its impact in Georgia, we have an enormous personal impact here in Georgia. Uh, we have an, a large number of uh, military bases, and we are already uh, sending uh, uh, Georgians into harm, into potential harm's way. They're not in harm's way yet, but uh, already Fort Stewart has sent several thousand of its uh, uh, best and brightest. Uh, young men and women uh, into Europe, uh, in addition to others that are already stationed there. So I, I don't want to, while we talk about the business side uh, of its impact here in Georgia, I don't want to lose sight of the of the folks from our home state who are answering the call to stand up to Putin uh, and, and defend uh, the countries in the NATO alliance. Um, Charlie and then Chuck, uh, I'd like you to just weigh in on the fact that we do, as divided as we are along toxic partisan lines, um, and although President Biden is certainly getting a share of criticism from Republicans, um, it, it, it feels as, the, as though at the pro-Trump faction of the Republican Party is not having its way in uh, the kind of attacks it would, it would like to make on, on Biden and the way the administration is handling this. Charlie? Uh, well, it, it does feel that way, and um, uh, from my perspective, frankly, that's a good thing. I, I would, uh, I would, I would hope that that would would continue to um, uh, to develop. But as we've seen over the past several years, um, there are a lot of cross currents in our political waters, and um, and it could change again. It was it was remarkable over the weekend to see the development of a global grassroots uprising against Ukraine um, and how that that swept into this country and impacted Donald Trump's position at CPAC, the way they were responding to it. Uh, I just hope that, that public memories are long enough uh, that, that people will remember who said what when um, and, and who was in what camp when. Uh, that I think will be one of the tests. Chuck? Uh, Charlie, I fear people's memories are too short, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, for that to happen. Um, I just find it really interesting. A couple of things. One, even Tucker Carlson is now attacking Putin on Fox News, uh, which shows you that it's, you must be listening to Jeff Duncan. Uh, two, uh, is there several reports <laughs> yesterday of large train loads of U.S. tanks heading to the Charleston Harbor, um, and uh, finally, I am filing asylum applications for Ukrainians and for Russians that are opposing the Putin regime right now. Uh, so it's, it, it's a really interesting global problem that's going on, a global issue that really affects us down home here in Georgia, which are home to many expatriate Ukrainians and Russians. Um, first of all, I want to apologize if my comments at the top of the show were a little nonsensical. I was having some technical difficulties and a weird echo that made it a little hard to think. Um, but something that, that has struck me as I've been watching all of these developments over the last um, couple days, especially when it comes to Republicans and their reaction to what's happening in Ukraine, is to me this feels like this is one area of the Trump doctrine that isn't sticking. Trump was so unique in that he had such a disdain for international institutions. He wanted to dismantle groups like NATO. He, of course, wanted the U.S. to, to leave the organization. 
Um, and I think this is an area that many Republicans now seem to be bucking the, the president and, you know, or the, the former president, and that's really not sticking. I think one thing Biden can hang his hat on, which I'm sure he will during the State of the Union address tonight, is how he was able to kind of um, organize, help organize the, the world's response to all of this using groups like NATO, the European Union, to try and fight what Putin is doing and how effective that's been, um, especially with a lot of these economic sanctions. Um, and so it's, it's interesting, just like what we were saying, you know, David Ralston was getting standing ovations from the, the House chamber when he was talking about standing up to Russia. And it seems like an area where many Republicans are falling in line there instead of what Trump is saying, standing up for Putin. Uh, Edward, just to extend uh, this uh, discussion a a little bit more, a a perfect example of this, I think, is uh, uh, Congressman Jody Heiss, who is now going to run for, is now running for Secretary of State. Uh, Heiss, of course, was one of the Republicans in the Georgia delegation who voted against certifying the election results for Joe Biden. He has uh, run for Secretary of State Uh, as an advocate of the big lie and someone who says he's going to fix things so we don't deal with corruption in our elections anymore. And yet, Edward, Heiss, too, has really steered clear of the uh, uh, Trump praise uh, for Putin. And I just think he's a a perfect example of what Tamara's talking about. Well, you're right. I mean, a a lot of folks uh, have woken up over the past week uh, to recognize that what uh, uh, Senator Romney uh, argued in 2012, which was our number one threat in the world, was Russia. And at the time, uh, he was put down by then-President Obama, who said that the Cold War was calling and that Russia was no longer our number one threat. There's a lot of folks who have woken up and recognized that Mitt was right. Uh, that this is uh, an, an individual that we need to take very seriously and that we need to be view them, him as an enemy, as well as uh, his compatriots in, the, in, in Russia. And, and it's good to see a lot. It's good to see, quite frankly, Europe wake up. And, and while uh, NATO has always been a vital, vitally important uh, protection for all of us against uh, Russian uh, aggression, for years, it's been hard to get a lot of the NATO countries to step up and, and put their fair share into defense spending. But now the Germans and others have been uh, shown a willingness to do so, uh, to up their defense spending. So it, it's good that globally uh, that folks recognize the dangers of, uh, of Mr. Putin and, uh, and Russia, Russian aggression, uh, and how it is a destabilizing influence uh, in the world. You know, I would note that one of the good things that President Trump did do was he he publicly exposed what many presidents have done before, but much more vocally, the fact that most uh, NATO countries were not spending 2% of their uh, GDP on the military. Um, Other countries, the president's done it too, but he was very vocal about it. Uh, I did see a very funny meme yesterday, which was from Germany. It said, let me get this right. You want us to expand our military, go into Poland and fight Russia. Got to get that right um, for the history books. Uh, I just thought that was very funny. Uh, but it's good to see Germany stepping up big time here because they are, I think, the biggest economy in Europe and certainly what the, probably the biggest player at this point that can make a difference. 
Uh, Charlie, lest we get too carried away in saying that Republicans are turning away from Donald Trump, I do want to point out that at the CPAC conference over the weekend, they held a presidential straw poll for 2024. And I get it. Straw polls are kind of meaningless. Nevertheless, they are a snapshot. 59 percent of the people who attended want Donald Trump to be president again in 2024, Charlie. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm not the right guy to ask to explain the thinking at CPAC or in the in the Republican <laughs> Party. I'll I'll add one one thought uh, to to this, and that is, it's we need to be thinking about how this thing ends. I am sadly old enough to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. what we don't know is whether there is somebody that. Khrushchev had, or that Khrushchev himself penned that second letter that opened the door to the negotiations that kept us all from being blown to oblivion. Uh, that worries me. It's I don't see an end game or a way that that, that Putin is given um, uh, a way of saving face and backing away from the abyss. Um, and I, I think it's premature. To, um, for us to be feeling so good about the way things are going over there. We're not done yet by a long shot. Well, 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 well two points, uh, and I'm going to – I will quiz for all your, your our listeners here. What do Jack Kemp, Bill Graham, Gary Bauer, George Allen, Ron Paul, and his son, <laughs> Land Paul, all have in common? They all want to poll uh, a presidential CPAC poll. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank so you I'm not thank you for that much. dose of reality mr <laughs> but uh but to um to, to charlie's more serious point and you know the, the fact of the matter is that there are more connections between us and russia today than there were between the u.s and soviet union in 1962 uh, particularly in the business area. And it's, you know, let's, let's hope, although hope is not a strategy, that some of those folks who have ties to the West, who are in Russia, who are feeling the impact uh, of a lot of the sanctions, will be the ones to uh, help create these back channels that Charlie spoke of, which were so important to pull folks back from the abyss in 62, and we can do the same here today. Because Charlie's absolutely right. While uh, the, the Ukraine people have, have shown great bravery in standing up to uh, the Russians so far, uh, this war is far from over, and the odds are still very much stacked against them if we cannot come up with some uh, way to, uh, to, to, uh, to end this thing. Um, ju- just to amplify that point, we had an extended conversation. Uh, some of you who are listening may have heard the show yesterday with uh, former U.S. Senator Sam Nunn, kind of one of the preeminent uh, leaders when he was in the U.S. Senate on military affairs and foreign affairs, for that matter. He said uh, he, uh, Putin's nuclear posture is very ominous, uh, reckless, and uh, I think he's very concerned that Putin may be willing to use nuclear weapons in some way or another uh, if he cannot get this control of the situation in the way he wants to. And by the way, um, that conversation, which I'd really uh, suggest if you didn't hear it, is available both on our website 
and on our podcast. And it's worth your while, I think, Sam's, uh, Senator Nunn's comments were uh, particularly uh, valuable, I think, given where we are right now. Uh, Chuck, let me turn attention to the issue of refugees right now. Um, we expect there could be, what, as many as a million Ukrainians, I think are the figures that I'm reading, who eventually uh, could be seeking refuge, perhaps more than that. Um, will some of them be, how will the United States handle uh, refugees from the Ukraine? And, and, and what needs to be set in motion to allow us to bring more people than we might otherwise into the country? Well, the numbers I'm seeing are four to five million eventually. They're, they're already well over oh. half a million uh, just in the first eight days. Uh, our recent history, both under the Trump administration and Biden administration, is terrible on refugees. Uh, and while the Biden administration has opened up 125,000 refugee slots this year, what most people don't know is that it takes two years to become a refugee to the United States because of the significant vetting that people go through to come here. And because there's not a border for Ukrainians to cross to come to the United States, I suspect that the 95% of the refugees that would leave Ukraine uh, will end up in Europe, um, much like the Syrians ended up the vast majority in Europe, and very, very few came to the United States. Our, our refugee and asylum system itself remains in chaos in the United States, uh, poorly managed, poorly run, uh, poorly designed, and simply not fulfilling its purposes at this point. So I'm not holding out hope for refugees here. Tomorrow. Yeah, and Chuck, my question, my question for you is how easy is that to change? Is that something the Biden administration could do unilaterally through executive orders? Or is that something that would need to go through Congress, which, as I know from all my years covering all the stalled immigration talks, it's nearly impossible to do anything touching the issue. Uh, the president has complete authority in this area. He, he can he can make this work. Uh, unfortunately, the program was dismantled during the Trump administration completely. So they have, they're basically reassembling it from scratch. And it's just even even with the massive influx of Afghans that came to the United States, uh, they still not even at 40 percent of where they should be to deal with that. So, I mean, we while they could staff it up, they have funding for it. They can do it. It just hasn't been a priority for this administration, oddly, oddly enough. Charlie, um, I want to bring up another part of this issue that I was struck by yesterday. Clearly, right now, uh, the world's attention is focused on the extraordinary courage of uh, Ukrainians in the face of the Russian invasion, um, the spirit they are showing, uh, their belief in their democracy. So it's understandable that uh, Europe would like to open its doors to Ukrainians who are seeking uh, refugee status. But I also think this was an interesting statement that I read yesterday. Um, Kirill Petkov, who is the prime minister of Bulgaria, uh, said this about Ukrainians coming into his country, which he's opening the door to allow hap to happen. He says, quote, these people are intelligent. They are educated people. This is not the refugee w wave we have been used to. People we were not sure about their identity, people with unclear pasts who could have even been terrorists. In other words, there's not a single European country now which is afraid of the current wave of refugees. So that's Bulgaria. And yet, uh, his comments certainly reflect an attitude that many people in this country have had about refugees from countries that don't look as much like we do as Ukraine as Ukraine does. Uh, all that is true, and and thank you for teeing me up. 
one thing that Georgia, especially rural Georgia, needs is people. We've got 118 counties that in 2020 had more deaths and births <laughs> and about that many that lost population. Um, I, I, I suspect that this would be about as politically unpopular as anything could do in this country or in the state. Um, but we need to come up with a strategy for repopulating those counties, everything or a lot from the net line south. Uh, frankly, I think, think extending that welcome to the Ukrainians and, and to Russians and others who want to immigrate to this country, including many coming across the southern border, is that something that needs to be seriously looked at. Again, I realize that has utterly no chance, but we need a 21st century um, uh, version of, of, of 40 acres and a mule to get to get those counties um, uh, reinvigorated. And I'll shut up there before I get in trouble. Um, one last comment on that before we get to a break, Chuck. Uh, you know, it's interesting. There are actually are counties, rural counties, lining up to seek refugees, but they're mostly in the Midwest. Uh, Iowa says, please send us as many refugees as you possibly can, because they realize they're great workers, super educated, willing to work hard, willing to show up, and they, you know, much like rural Georgia, they, but they have, they've had, they've been suffering longer. So, I mean, there would be an instant welcome, I believe, for refugees here if we could just get the system to work. Okay, um, let's do this. Let's get to the first break of the show and move on. There's a lot in election politics to talk about, and we'll do that in just a moment. We are going to continue to keep our eye on uh, Ukraine in the days and weeks ahead. And just to give you a quick uh, 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 promotion about what we're doing this week, on Thursday, we're going to be joined by four-star General uh, Philip Breedlove, who was the uh, commander of the U.S. European Command, as well as the supreme allied commander of NATO operations in all of Europe. And certainly, uh, General Breedlove can talk extensively about how the war is developing. And we're very pleased that um, he's going to be joining us. Uh, Let's get to our first break of the show. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Tamar Hallerman, Charlie Hazlett, Edward Lindsay, Chuck Cook, join me uh, for today's uh, show. Um, Trouble in God's Country, Charlie, by the way, how can people uh, just give us the URL? I think I know it, but I'd rather have you do it. Troubleingodscountry.com, all, spell, all spelled out. <laughs> uh, and I appreciate the okay. plug. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really a wonderful uh, uh, a page to go to. Um, all right, Tamar, uh, let, let's move on. I, let's talk about what David Perdue is doing today. Uh, David Perdue is going to be in Rutledge, where there is a group of residents who are opposed to Rivian bringing its auto assembly plant in, uh, worried about the, whether it's going to have an impact on the water uh, in the uh, county, whether it's going to change uh uh, traffic patterns, density, things. You know, they're basically a rural community out there. But Purdue is joining them, and he has a different message. He wants to fight Rivians coming in because George Soros, the demon of right-wing politics, has uh, made a large uh, financial investment, maybe as much as a billion dollars in Rivian. And so now Purdue 
is uh, calling it the Rivian-owned Rivian. I mean, the the uh, Soros-owned Rivian Auto uh, Company. Uh, Tomorrow, it it's really a strange development for David Perdue. <laughs> Absolutely. And he's headlining an event this evening called uh, the Rally to Stop Soros Funded Rivian and Protect Rural Georgia. Um, And it it really is a striking change of pace from him. He, of course, is a former Fortune 500 CEO um, who really leaned on that expertise as he uh, served in in the Senate, as he ran on the campaign trail. It was something he really touted his business savvy. And I remember always reading press releases from his staff touting whatever business development deal was coming to to Georgia over the years. So obviously, this is such a striking change of pace for him. Um, Look, I see it as a way for him to kind of put some... Some, uh, daylight between him and Brian Kemp um, to try and get kind of the, the populist Trumpies kind of on his side in the lead up to the primary. He obviously is trailing the governor uh, quite substantially when it comes to fundraising. And so uh, I guess this is how he thinks he can help um, kind of rally the, the base around him. But obviously a, a giant change from the rhetoric that we'd seen from him over his six years in the Senate. Edward, it, it is it is hard to comprehend uh, the opposition uh, to this uh, project. It's, it's 7,500 high-paying uh, manufacturing jobs coming into an area uh, that that needs it, um, with, along with all the taxes that will go along with those tax revenue that will go along with it. Uh, this is a, a great achievement for this governor. It uh, it's part of several great achievements that this governor has had in terms of attracting business, particularly what I would call the, the next wave of businesses. Uh, this is a battery. These are uh, uh, trucks that are uh, run on electricity. Uh, he's also brought in a, a battery electric battery plant up in uh, North Georgia as well, as well as uh, several new developments down along the coast and around the entire state. This is one of the best achievements that this governor has had over the last three and a half years. And uh, the only thing that, that, that really uh, makes any sense is that since he's running against the governor, if the governor is for it, he, he's again it. Uh, other than that, there is no uh, policy reason to oppose this, period. Yeah, uh, Charlie, I, I, I understand that this could be an appeal to those Trumpites who are out there uh, and maybe preparing to vote in a Republican primary. But uh, in the long run, a governor of a state really cannot afford to be in a position of starting to argue that we've got to be careful about bringing business investments into the state, especially a company that's going to bring at least 7,500 jobs. It really is strange, Charlie. It's it's beyond strange. And to to echo uh, what Edward was saying, uh, and I'm not a Kemp guy. I'm not a Purdue guy. But um, uh, this, there's no way this doesn't go in the win column uh, for for Brian Kemp. And it's not just that it's a, a huge one-time economic development win. This is the kind of thing that will transform the economy in that region of the state and in the state by spawning economic clusters that will support this new and emerging industry. And it's, uh, I think it's, it has to go down. It's one of the biggest economic development, um, developments in the state's history. And, and David Perdue is, I mean, he has turned himself into a laughingstock 
uh, as far as I can tell with this. So, uh, and yeah, if the if the Trump dead enders want to go down that road with him, fine. I don't I don't think it's going to end well. Chuck Cook, yeah. I, how many voters could there possibly be that are opposed to stopping a large employer from coming to the state? It doesn't seem like there's any real bright light here. I all I can imagine is the Stacey Abrams campaign is going yes. Go Purdue, destroy it, you know, rip apart the GOP. It just seems crazy to me that he would do something like this. But, you know, I think we spent four years getting used to crazy. So maybe it's not as crazy as we think. <laughs> well, we don't well, know. I mean, we will watch. It'll be Abrams, interesting to see. Go ahead, Charlie. Stacey Abrams, Stacey Abrams actually uh, placed that economic development win and the, and the, oh, yeah. the turn to, to, um, to electric. So to give a little credit where that's due, but yeah, Brian Kemp deserves a, a huge measure of, of credit and his administration does for, for reeling that fish in. And I, you know, uh, to, to, to Bill's point about governors discerning, um, uh, what economic development to bring to the state. I think they do. I think they do have a responsibility to decide whether something makes sense or doesn't this, there's just almost no way, this doesn't make a massive amount of sense. And I've got to believe there are 49 governors in this country who are um, uh, would love to be in Brian Kemp's shoes right now. So good luck with all this, David. <laughs> and something to, something to remember, should David Perdue become governor, is his job, one of his jobs will be to be a cheerleader for Georgia on the international stage. Um, and it's something that his first cousin, Sonny Perdue, you know, really prioritized when he was governor. He was celebrating when Kia announced that they were going to open up a plant in in West Point um, and really sought after business from South Korea. So that's something David Perdue would would be trying to do as well. So um, certainly an interesting position, probably one, you know, for short term game to to try and tap into some of this local backlash that um, that Rivian has experienced lately. But I, I wonder how much in the long term that's really going to help him. You know, Edward, it strikes me that there is a way to uh, be a little bit more moderate in your criticism of this business deal than by going after it because George Soros has an investment in the company. I mean, I, I've talked on this show and, and, and talked with a panel a week or so ago about a Wall Street Journal piece which uh, uh, suggested that Rivian um, right now looks like more of an illusion than a reality. They've produced very few electric vehicles. Their stock has plummeted. Uh, it now looks like uh, General Motors and other American uh, manufacturers may be getting electric vehicles on out into the marketplace at a rap, more rapid pace than Rivian's been able to do. Um, now, in the long run, everybody hopes the best for, or not everyone, but so many people hope the best for a company that could bring so much economic development to the state. But I do think it's always important to point out that there's a gamble in Rivian at this point still. Well, there's a gamble with a lot of startup companies, oh, and, and Rivian's not a startup company, but it is uh, a relatively new company, and there's always a gamble uh, with a lot of the economic development that our Department of Economic Development has to has to weigh uh, when it comes to deciding uh, how much to uh, to assist a company to come to the state of Georgia. Uh, but if but the fact of the matter is that we could either look to the 
the old way of doing business and simply only, you know, try to attract folks like General Motors who left the state of Georgia, or we can start looking for the, that next great thing. And there's always going to be a certain risk out there, but uh, but that's one in which uh, the folks who are involved in economic development are always uh, have to have to weigh. The fact of the matter is, Rivian has made certain commitments and has uh, a certain a track record in certain areas that that, that made it a, a good catch. Georgia was not the only state <laughs> that it was looking at, and Georgia was able to win it. And so I think you know, um, you know, we'll see what happens, and we certainly hope that it brings in. What it what it should, but uh, but beyond hope, I think there was a lot of uh, due diligence that went into it. So I, I applaud the governor for for bringing it in, as well as a lot of the other industries he was able to bring into this state. Uh, Edward, let's take up one more issue before the break. And since the ball's in your sure. court, I'd like to start with you on this, in part because you, in your role uh, at Denton's, were involved in the Buckhead cityhood movement. You you were down there arguing against. Uh, cityhood, which to this, at this point has certainly yeah. uh, stalled out in the current session. But I want to get your response to Donald Trump, who over the weekend issued a, what was a really searing statement, blasting Kemp, Jeff Duncan, David Ralston, uh, and Butch Miller, Jeff Mullis, all of those state uh, leaders who were involved at least in the in the in the in the short term in stopping the cityhood movement from going forward he calls them rhinos and you know he they're rhinos republicans in name only um trying to revive the movement edward your your response to that well uh this will be my second quiz of the day uh what does uh <laughs> donald trump and david Perdue have in common with bucket uh they both lost in bucket the day that you can try to tag um, uh, David Ralston and Governor Kemp and um, Jeff Duncan, three lifelong Republicans, uh, as well as some of the other folks that, that were mentioned in the press release. Uh, from uh, from the former president, including Jeff Butch Miller, and uh, and some of the other folks. Um, Jeff Mullis was also mentioned. Well, actually, two individuals who support Bucket. He tried to uh, paint them all as rhinos. Is utterly ridiculous. Uh, these are folks who have been part of the buildup of our party uh, for the last 30, 40, 50 years, and and it's quite frankly somewhat of an insult uh, to try to tag them with that. Um, and, you know, the, the, we have some serious issues here in Atlanta that we need to deal with. I think that the I think uh, Speaker Ralston and Jeff Duncan and others have been quite right to say, let's give this new mayor a chance. But to also tell this new mayor, there are problems in your city, fix it, uh, was the right approach. And, and my organization is one of those organizations that's going to work very hard to, uh, to see to it that this new mayor uh, and our city uh, uh, take, take the necessary steps to fix some of the serious issues that we uh, Tamar, uh, your colleagues who uh, work on the Jolt every day uh, pointed out that Don Jr. is heading into town next week. 
uh, to rally uh, for a couple of the candidates uh, for it on the ballot. I can't remember who pr- specifically is coming in for. But you also, there's speculation among your, your folks at the AJC that Trump himself will probably be here in the weeks ahead, certainly to rally for David Perdue, maybe, maybe uh, 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 some of the others on the ticket, Jody Heiss. Um, so his attack on these people who did not push hard enough, he thinks, for the Buckhead City movement, it's likely to continue as the uh, primary plays out to the extent that the Trumps are involved with it. Sure. Um, but at the same time, he goes after a lot of those people at his own peril. Uh, people like Jeff Duncan and, and Speaker Ralston hold the keys to this issue. Obviously, they've pronounced it dead, at least for, for 2022. And as we saw with some of the attacks uh, against sitting legislators by people in favor of charter schools in the last couple days, um, you don't want to swing too hard because you might piss people off and they, you know, even allies might turn against you. So that's certainly um, something to note. It was also interesting that that Trump went after people who at least were one time supporters of this movement, like Jeff Mullis. Um, why yeah. would you want to alienate those people who'd be carrying the banner uh, in, the, in the state legislature? All right, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show. And uh, when we come back, uh, pick up a couple of more issues that are in the news today. You're listening to Political Rewind. Chuck Cook, President Biden, gives his uh, State of the Union address, of course, tonight. There was a day, a time, when presidents of the United States might use the uh, State of the Union to talk about a comprehensive bipartisan immigration reform plan. Those days are long since gone. Um, He is expected tonight, of course, to talk about the Russian assault on the Ukraine, but also to talk about inflation and and the pain he knows that Americans are experiencing. But I start with you on this. Because here's a president who's barely at 40% in many of the polls in terms of approval. And one of the things that continues to weigh him down is his apparent lack of progress, according to many people, on immigration issues. Chuck? Well, he hasn't made, honestly, any progress on immigration. Um, you know, he's appointed a couple people that should know what they're doing. But he has actually bled really good people out of the White House over the last couple of months on immigration issues because apparently they're being stymied by senior people like Susan Rice uh, from pushing the Biden administration to do more administratively than they've done. One of the lessons we've learned from the Trump White House is you can do a lot on immigration administratively, and the Biden administration just kind of gave up on it. Um, so uh, it is, and, and as a result, his numbers among Latinos are tanking, uh, and it yeah. bodes very poorly for the upcoming election. Uh, for some congressional seats where Latino votes are going to swing uh, seats in many districts, especially in Texas. Well, Chuck, the, the one thing we do have to say, though, is the administration is uh, going to be uh, uh, have a stake in the Supreme Court hearing when they look at the Remain in Mexico policy, which was put in place by the Trump administration, which the Biden administration tried to overturn. They were fought in the courts. So that's at least they've tried to work on that issue. Yes. Uh, the Remain in Mexico policy, while very politically toxic, is like the pimple on the butt of a flea of the problem of immigration in the United <laughs> States. 
<laughs> and yeah, it's it's public, and and the reality is they were forced to reinstate it. They can't, they, they can't get lawyers to defend people because the lawyers that normally typically in these courts are refusing to do so because they reinstated the program. Um, so yeah, it's uh, you know it's politically terrible for him, uh, and he, he should not have had to reinstate it. He's going to win at the Supreme Court, by the way. But at the end of the day, there's so much other big picture stuff that could be done that's not being done that doesn't require Congress, and that that's he's going to suffer for that. Charlie, um, given that one of your concerns is what's happening in rural Georgia, the lack of any kind of progress on immigration is very painful to people in uh, rural parts of the state that need the help. Well, it, it absolutely is. And just to echo what we talked about earlier, rural Georgia needs an immigration policy. Um, and it's a shame that we can't make more more progress on this to go and and. Uh, to go back to the sort of the politics of it, um, it's I, I agree with Chuck. The um, uh, the the damage being done, it's, I don't see how you undo it between now and the general election. Um, I feel like that ship has has sailed, and it's very difficult to find um, any good news uh, for for the Democrats uh, in in the numbers that we're seeing in the polls. And then the policies that we're that we're seeing coming out of Washington right now, um, I, you know, again the waters are pretty murky, but it's 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 tough to to find a good explanation. And I think immigration is a big part of the reason why, uh, and it uh, and it was it's it was an, it's been an unforced um, error, an unforced um, omission of a, of a real um, uh, opportunity. Uh, Tamar, I, I want to talk just about the State of the Union in a broader way with you for just a moment. You covered many of them during your tenure working in Washington. I was up there for many of them as well. And and there was a time when the night of the State of the Union really was an extraordinary evening, uh, watching every member of the House and the Senate coming together, watching the Supreme Court justices march through uh, the rotunda on the way to the chamber. Um, it was a night that certainly partisan politics was evident with uh, Republicans standing and applauding Republican ideas, Democrats doing the same on the other side of the aisle. But there was a pageantry to it. Uh, and an excitement about it that, from my point of view, is long since gone because of the toxicity in Washington right now. What, give us your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. You would sit and watch the the chamber and there was like an electricity in the room, like a giddiness that almost felt like the first day of school. Like everybody <laughs> knew it was kind of a big night and they, they would install extra lights in the chamber. So all the legislators would be sitting there being like, everyone's watching us. This is so much fun. Everyone would bring their guests that, you know, to, they would make a political point in one way or another by their guests. There was a whole thing about who they'd sit next to, who would be their date for the evening. I remember there were a couple years during the Obama administration where it was kind of fashionable to sit next to a member from the opposite side of the aisle. Um, so much of that has changed. Of course, there's the toxicity um, that you mentioned, uh, just how hyper-partisan we've gotten. Of course, there's January 6th and kind of just the fear that that brought in terms of people's safety and just kind of the differences and responses that we had to that, especially given kind of the, the partisanship. There's also been COVID. Um, remember last year during the, the president's address to Congress, that was not a full chamber that he was um, 
you know, that he was speaking to. And even this year, folks are not allowed to bring guests with them. Um, masks, I believe, will be optional this year, but they will still, legislators will still be sitting with spaces in between each of them. So it still feels like a very different um experience. And before I turn it back to you, just a quick correction, Bill. Um, as I was talking about the Buckhead City debate and potentially Trump alienating Republicans, I mentioned a, an attack on Republican legislators last week. And I said they were charter school supporters, but it was actually uh, supporters of voucher programs. So I want to apologize for that error. Oh, no, no, no problem. No problem, Tamar. Um, Edward, what, what can... Uh, President Biden do? Charlie and Chuck both suggest that the president's going to have a very hard time making up ground, even though there are months and months till the general election. How could he start tonight uh, turning the corner in in some way to give Democrats some uh, momentum? And of course, I ask that of you, a Republican. Well, I'm not so sure what he can do to pick up ground from what what, uh, the Democrats are going to lose in November. But I do know what he could do in terms of uh, uniting uh, Americans when it comes to the threat in Europe. And that is to look into the camera and very squarely tell the American people that there are Ukrainians who are fighting and dying for freedom. We are sending our best and brightest to the front lines of NATO to protect our NATO allies. Folks, we're going to feel some pain here. Uh, These sanctions are going to have some pain for you and me. But in order to to stand behind our American troops and stand with the Ukrainian people, we have to accept some sacrifice here uh, in order to protect freedom throughout the world. That is the message that I would like to see my president, and I don't care if he's a Republican or a Democrat, utter tonight. Because uh, I but, think but, that's the message but, that ought to be uttered. I apologize for interrupting. But Charlie, Chuck, we're running out of time. But... If you're going to do that, and, and there are reasons to think Biden may, uh, you've got to have some sense that maybe Republicans aren't going to jump all over and attack you. If we are going to sacrifice, it's got to be a shared sacrifice that Republicans and Democrats stand behind. you got about 30 seconds, Charlie and Chuck, on that. Charlie? <laughs> well, the Republicans are going to attack him no matter what he says. So, you know, just, you know, that that's a that's a given. Uh, but I will uh, uh, echo uh, what Edward said and applaud. I made a fair living as a speechwriter for a lot of years. Um, and he, he certainly uh, shows an instinct for it there. And I, I would uh, hope to hear the same thing uh, from Biden and think that um, effectively delivered, you know, it could rise to a Churchillian sort of level. Um, I heard that Biden just lost his main speechwriter, so there's a position open uh, for Mr. Lindsay to go there. Uh, you know, he, the Biden administration needs to stop worrying about Repu- what Republicans think about him. Republicans are 35 percent of the country. He needs to focus on what America needs and what's good for America. And once he starts doing that, I think he'll see his phone numbers go up. Uh, final word of today's show goes to, uh, to Lawyer Cook. Chuck Cook. Thank you, Chuck, for being with us. Charlie Hazel, enjoyed having you here as well. Edward Lindsay, we're always glad when you join Political Rewind. And Tamar, 
Tuesdays are a better day because you are my partner on this show. Thanks to all of you for really fascinating conversation today. We're back again tomorrow. Marjorie Taylor Greene made news over the weekend. We didn't get to that, but we'll talk about it with the panel tomorrow, among many other things. Uh, in the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. See you all tomorrow.